Good morning, marketers, and welcome to the Iffy Market Podcast, brought to you by Mountaintop Data. We are the only podcast that markets the shit out of it. I'm Sky Cassidy, and today we'll be talking with Tim Parkin of Parkin Consulting about marketing inside out. What's marketing inside out? Well, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. It's um, From the little I know about it, let's say this is going to be a very interesting and counterintuitive episode. So uh, Tim's a global consultant, advisor, coach to marketing executives of many world-renowned brands, which is another way of saying really big companies, I think. And uh, Tim, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Sky. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to get into this and talk about it. Yeah, so let's dive right into it because the listeners are thinking, what the hell is marketing inside out? We're going to talk about marketing uh, Pixar movies now or something. So can you tell <laughs> us what do you mean by marketing inside out? Yeah, you know, there's, there's a really big problem in marketing that a lot of people are afraid to talk about. And that is that marketing organizations waste a massive amount of time and money. And when we think about that, you know, there's really two ways that it manifests itself. The first is that half of the money and time is spent on doing the wrong things, right? Things that have absolutely no impact, no bearing, and get no results. The other half is wasted on doing the right things, but doing them really poorly. <laughs> wasted that, on doing the right things. I got to quote that. <laughs> it is. Doing the right things very poorly. You know, and that's what we see in so many companies. And as you mentioned, I work with really large companies. And these companies have all the resources, all the budget, all the people, and yet still they suffer from these issues. So marketing inside out is about addressing those two issues. And by focusing internally first, then you can focus externally on the customer. So something you said when we talked before that really caught my interest on this topic was, was you said um, something about not focusing on the customer. And I was like, what? That nobody ever says that. Is, is this a trap? Is he setting me up? Um, so you say inside out and looking at these waste and stuff like that. What is the not focusing on the customer? Obviously, that's not a customer thing. Um, and I feel like I don't think you're saying don't focus on the customer. You're just saying, hey, here's another thing you can do that isn't like you should also probably focus on the customer. But then there's a whole other area where you can find profits. Or are you saying really forget about the customer and just get efficient? Yeah, I think your customer always matters for sure. But a lot of marketing companies, marketing organizations spend too much time pretending to focus on the customer. You know, customer centricity, customer focus is this buzzword that people throw around. And when you get inside these organizations, you look at what they're actually doing. They really don't care about the customer. You know, well, they're making you... posters and they put them on the wall. It says we care about the customer. They make commercials about how they love the customer. You know, you know what the product is. Uh, come on. Isn't that caring about the customer? I guess it's one way to care about the customer, right? But not if you want real results, if you want to actually see growth. And so there's this pretend going on that we're all talking about the customer, but no one's actually doing anything about the customer. And so, you know, I like to ask companies when I work with them, when's the last time you talked to your customers? You know, when have you done a survey recently? When have you done customer interviews? When have you done usability testing? And they just stare at me, you know, like a deer in headlights because it's been, you know, last year we did a survey or, you know, we just did some user interviews, you know, six months ago. That's not frequent enough. If you really care about the customer, if you want to make the customer central, you have to be talking to them nonstop. But, you know, the other problem is NPS. You know, NPS is complete garbage. You know, that's not customer centricity either. But all of these are just pretending about the customer. Okay, the I'll let it pretend like I know off the top of my head what NPS means, but I'll ask you for the listeners. Sure. NPS, <laughs> what's that? NPS is a net promoter score. If you've ever gotten one of those emails that says, you know, how likely are you to recommend us to a friend on a scale of one to 10? and you click a six or a seven because you think, what the hell? I don't know. 
Well, because uh, the salesperson told you, hey, if I don't get a 10, I'm fired, man. My family will starve. So please, you got to right. give me a 10 every time. That's right. And some companies just send this out without even looking at the results. You know, it's bad enough that they're using NPS, but they collect this data and they don't even look at it to make a decision about it. So, you know, if you want to pretend about the customer, that's one thing. But if you want real growth, you have to look inside. Because as I mentioned, there's a massive amount of waste in terms of time and money. And we've seen this uh, made even worse by the pandemic, that a lot of teams now are remote and they're trying to figure out hybrid or remote. So they're not even in person. You know, when you can walk down the hall and yell at your, you know, teammate or colleague and say, where is this? Or why did you do it this way? That helps accelerate things. But now we've lost that. And so companies are really struggling right now to figure out how do you dr uh, drive and manage an effective marketing team, an effective marketing organization remotely or through hybrid. And it's been a big issue for a long time, even before that. So now it's being exposed, thankfully. Okay. I want to touch this net promoter score thing, because I had a thought as before the MPS, you were talking about doing customer surveys and stuff like that. And that is kind of a customer survey. It's just a really weak, uh, worthless kind of one. And I thought, oh, well, we have all these sales cadences and stuff now. Why wouldn't companies just do a automatic cadence when certain touches happen where you give people a survey and the marketing uh, can update the survey from time? I was like, oh, that's kind of what an MPS is. They just do a terrible job of it. So instead of once a year, once every couple of years, looking to do some, some surveys and talk to customers. It's like, well, how about you have it on an automatic drip whenever people cross certain thresholds? Okay. They have that with NPS. It just seems like it's done poorly. Maybe would it, I mean, would that be a good idea to do that just more effectively and not just trying to create a score where that you can use in marketing to tell people how much you care about, look, they, our customers love us. It seems like the only use for it is to be able to say, oh yeah, look how much our customers love us. We told yeah. them to act like they love us, so they did. And now we can use that marketing to prove that we care about the customer. Yeah, to justify and get a bigger budget for next year. I think, I think you're right. I know anytime you can get feedback from people is valuable. And if you can do it on an automated basis, that's valuable also. We can't forget the human element as well, though, which is to train people to actually talk to customers. And customer service is a great source of this, that customer service, customer support, whatever you call it, they're talking to customers all the time through email, through phone, through chat. That insight, those conversations are a pure goldmine. And, you know, I've worked with clients before and I've said, can you give me all the call data that you have so we can scrape it and see what's happening? And they said, oh, no, we can't get that. Or we can't use those conversations from email or we don't have access to live chat data. You know, that's gold, pure gold to understand the voice of the customer, to see the real issues people are facing. And again, if you want to be customer centric, uh, focused, central, centralized, you need to have that data. You need to use that data and actually have access to it. You know, so one we're of my getting clients... away from the topic, though. We're saying, yeah, you got to do this with a customer. But your whole point here is forget about that. Like look for look for growth, look for profit, look for marketing um, success. Aside from the customer side. So I don't want to dig into that too much because then it's a um, an episode about uh how you need to be customer centric instead of not <laughs> like, yeah, well, I think the, the, yeah, I think most people, you know, just to give you a glimpse of what it would look like, most people aren't even doing that. And so that's where this whole thing is a farce to begin with that we pretend we care about the customer, but we really don't. But yeah, if you look internally, I'll tell you, you know, growth is like a tree and this is the big fallacy. Uh, if your business is a tree, you want it to keep growing. You want it to get taller and taller and you want to have this massive tree. But the problem is in marketing, most managers, most you know, CMOs forget that the tree has a part underneath of it, the roots. And in order to grow tall, you have to grow deep. 
And that's the real uh, point of marketing inside out is that you can only grow as tall as you grow down. And so you need people and you need process and you need structure to support this growth. And without that, any growth that you have vertically above ground is flimsy and weak and will collapse. It's not sustainable. And so marketing inside out really is about developing that internal capability so you can have deep and strong roots to support and sustain and drive your growth. I feel like I'm starting to really like this in that word, data company, mountaintop data. We provide lists for sales and marketing. And one of the things we've always preached throughout the years is, look, if, if your data is, is uh, 50% accurate, like you want to double your productivity, what if it was 100% accurate? Now, you're not going to get there, but a lot of people have such dirty data that they have and everything else cascades up from that. So it's a multiplier just up through all the activities. And we're always screaming like, you're getting everything is wrong from here because your foundation is uh, is wrong and you're spending all this effort marketing to companies that aren't even in business anymore because you're starting off with this, you assume it's right, but it's all wrong information at the base. So it's those kind of efficiencies you're talking about? Absolutely. Yeah, I think data is a great example of that, as you described, because if that's wrong, all those efforts after that are complete waste and leading you down a path where you're just wasting more time and money. And, you know, performance, the formula for performance, in my opinion, is people plus process equals performance. You need the right people because you have to have good, smart, intelligent people who can do the right thing. And you need a solid process. And if you have great people, but not a good process, you know, that's not going to work out for you. It's going to be unreliable and unsustainable. And if you have okay people or average people with a tremendous process, you know, you can get consistent results, but it's only if you have exceptional people with a really well-defined process that you can achieve substantial and incredible growth. And so you need both those components. I've always said that I believe a, a good process, you can be successful with average people. If your process yes. requires amazing people, it's not really a good process because that's not really sustainable. You can't assume you're always going to have rock stars. Like, no, no, no. It has to work with average people. Otherwise, it's not really a good product. You have a 1980s Jaguar. Like, it's not really a good car. It's breaking down constantly. It's not just going to work. It's just so, there's so many little points of failure. Okay. Um, so, I mean, you're saying you got to focus on the customer. You got to do regular marketing, but there's all these other areas. My initial thought was, okay, Tim works with these large companies. This is really something that applies only to large companies. But then when you make me think about the data, I'm like, oh, wait, if a small company has these inefficiencies, so is this something that's generally applied once they have maxed out growth from their marketing activities and they're, then you need to get more efficient? Or is it something that's kind of small, large, all along the way should be, should be employed? Yeah, you made a great point earlier when we were talking about this briefly that, you know, depending on the stage that your organization's at, uh, really determines where you should focus. And for example, in subscription or in SaaS businesses, you know, software as a service, a lot of companies are focused purely on growth, on acquisition, acquiring new customers, and they ignore retention. And that's to their detriment because every customer you acquire that you can't retain, you know, you're wasting time and money acquiring more customers. You have to keep filling this ship that's leaking, you know, it has a huge hole in the bottom. And so this is where, you know, obviously in subscription model, you should focus on retention and focus on acquisition so you can solve that problem. And so there's really three stages of growth here. The first is if you're a startup, or you have a new business, you know, you need product market fit and no amount of 
internal or external is going to solve that. So you have to get product market fit. That's mostly for startups, for entrepreneurs, for small businesses. You need that fundamentally. Next, though, is internal. And this is what I talk about marketing inside out. You need the right people and processes so you can have that foundation that we were just describing. And then and only then should you focus on the external, on scaling through spend and through partners and through other means, because it's only with a solid foundation that you can really amplify that growth that you've already gotten. You've gotten and there. You're talking about fit. like marketing campaigns, exactly. So product market fit, people and process, then actual like actual marketing out to the customer. Large scale campaigns. Yes, absolutely. Okay, but then where does the inside out stuff? Where do you go looking for inefficiencies or for loopholes that you can close or whatever it is to to? I, I mean, I guess if you're looking for ROI in your marketing, if you spend half as much money because you remove, then you're doubling your ROI. Right. Um, it's like, oh, well, crap. But then some companies don't really care. They need the growth. They don't, they don't care too much what the ROI is to get there at some stages. Can you give some examples of these efficiencies? Because I feel like, yeah. I mean, I kind of threw out the whole data thing, like, oh, have cleaner data. Okay. But are some of these not even in like part of the marketing campaign where like, oh, if we tweak this, we can get more, better results from this campaign. You're talking about like, personnel and hey this person should get a raise and these two should get fired and you'll be more efficient and uh, or let's yes. say laid off or something uh let move on to another career or or whatnot um is it getting to those kind of things are we talking about like accounting tricks are we talking about um negotiate renegotiating contracts and stuff um how much yeah, of this is really outside examples. of marketing at all and how much of it is making more marketing efficiency yeah, I'd say there's two sides to it. One is optimization, which is, you know, optimizing your campaigns, your strategy, your tactics, your marketing approach. The other is operations, which is, you know, the people and the process side of it. And so, you know, one of my clients has many agencies that they use uh, for the same function. And it's been kind of this juggling act, right, of, you know, we have this agency, now we're bringing on another agency, we got rid of that agency. If you can consolidate those things, then you can save a lot in terms of communication that happens, in terms of the efficiency of the budget, in terms of the consistency of the results. So that's part of it. It's just, you know, operationally, management-wise, how can we do that? But, you know, finding these inefficiencies is not difficult. And I imagine that people listening to this right now can already think of some of them, you know, in their own team or organization. If you're having more than a few meetings a week, if you're having to meet on the same thing multiple times, if you're having to follow up on tasks or projects, or if you don't have insight or ideas about, you know, how the performance of your campaigns are going, you know, those are obvious indicators that the people in the process within your organization have issues and have inefficiencies that you can address. And, you know, and oftentimes these organizations operate based on assumptions and common knowledge rather than documented processes, principles, and procedures. And so if you don't have those things, if anything I just described there sounds like you, then you more than likely have one or more of these issues. And I can tell you, I've been surprised, you know, as I've worked with larger and larger companies, no one has this right, everyone is struggling. You know, one of my clients right now just went from 15 people in the marketing team to 30 people, you know, doubling in size. And what they found is that different people have different levels of experience, different skill sets, different backgrounds, uh, different personalities of how they operate, how they communicate. And so that's a challenge of trying to make all those people gel, have a consistent language and process around that so we can all operate and be efficient and maximize our chances of success. So these are real issues and they're unfortunately extremely common. And are they, uh, I mean, it seems like they become more common the larger a company gets. It's easy to be efficient with one person kind of, 
and then you add two and you get communication inefficiencies and you have to have process more processes when you have more people and so does this i guess two parts to this question does this amplify when the companies get larger which is maybe why you you tend to work with larger companies also they usually have larger checkbooks well let's just start with that one let's let's i, I won't pile questions yeah. on you yeah absolutely you're right there's a network effect and so adding one node to the network you know it has to connect to every other node and so when you add someone you know in the digital team for example they're obviously working with everyone else in the digital team but then they may also interface with someone from the creative team and so it creates this network effect so you're absolutely right that in larger companies if your team is bigger it gets more complicated you know the flip side though is also true to some extent but larger companies work with a lot of agencies as well if you're working with agencies you know that also creates a two-way network effect where now your people are working with their people and it gets complicated how do you keep all the communication flowing how do you organize that how do you reduce the number of meetings so we don't have to just you know repeat things so there's a lot of just management that has to happen in organization uh, even if you're a medium-sized business but at enterprise level it definitely becomes quite complicated the more people who are involved. So you want to, and it seems like the processes help with that. If if you do the product market fit, people and processes, you're much less likely to have these. If you have good processes, then you're going to have less inefficiency. The processes are kind of designed for that. But then again, you get large, of course, there's still going to be inefficiencies and they add up to way more money. Um, it also occurs to me that once companies get really large, they've kind of maxed out their market a bit. And then now where are you going, how are you going to increase your ROI? Your return has been maxed out. You own a dominant share of the market. There isn't really much left to get. It's return, diminishing returns on what you, you're trying to fight for. Um, the efficiencies are really where all the remaining profit is. Is to then you, But then you get things like Costco or not Costco, like Walmart where they're like, well, the way to do it now is just to like squeeze everything as much as possible, um, which is more profitable for them. But that's, you know, how are you going to continue to grow when everybody's already shopping there? Well, now you have to get more money from each person and pay less for each product um, uh, type of a thing. So I guess one, once a company, whether they're small and they've saturated their market, maybe it's a local market and you're like the only plumber in town, um, then you kind of have to look for efficiencies. That's all you have left. Is that at any size, part of uh, the eff effectiveness of this? Yeah, it certainly can be. You know, I think I would say uh, there's a caution there that a lot of companies may think they've saturated the market when they haven't. Uh, and there's a lot more customers than you think. And you can always steal customers from the competition. I'll tell you, though, one of my clients is uh, in the Internet space, highly competitive, you know, uh, Internet provider. And they have like 75% market share. So it's very, you know, they're not going to get 90% market share in that industry. It's that diminishing returns at that point. It's really exactly. hard. You can take your customers or your, your competitor's business, but your ROI is going to be much, much lower on those activities. Exactly. Yeah. And so growth for them in that line of business is, you know, 3% a year. They're happy with that. And so you're not talking about phenomenal gains. It's more about maintaining, you know, that level of growth and, and replacing the people who churn. And so you're right that at that point, you can then go back and look internally and find more efficiencies and then apply those elsewhere to retention, to other lines of business, et cetera. Um, but I would say most businesses can always acquire more customers or can launch or they're launching new products uh, or they're acquiring their competition at that size. Thank you. you know? Yes. Launch new products. I always say, I see when companies get to a point where they've saturated the market and the ROI on getting the people they don't already have isn't 
really quite worth it anymore. They can't grow the way they used to because they've done such a good job, let's say. Um, instead of trying to sell your product to people who don't need it and like force it down their throat because you've already got all the people who do, make a different product for other people yes. or you know, start another company somewhere. That one's good. You won in that area. Great. Now focus on something. Go do something else uh, with, with, with your skills. Um, you've maximized that industry's um, efficiency and you provide a great product for your customers. Awesome. Now, don't try to continue to uh, grow a thing past where it should be grown. Uh, I, yeah, I like you said, the law of diminishing returns really applies. And understanding when those returns start to diminish is an important self-awareness that you have to have. And you have to be honest with yourself about it to move on and pivot, as you said, to something else. I think some companies get in this thing where they're like, oh, uh, we aren't growing as fast as we used to. So we're failing. Like, no, no, you've won. You can't grow. It's like, you can't be most improved player forever. Eventually yes. you've yes. hit the you're top. The you're in first yeah. place. You're not going to also get most improved. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen. Um, you have to concede that you've won and focus on other stuff. Now get, get efficient. Something like actually love yes. your customers. Maybe who knows? Yeah. Well, like you said, there's a lot of startups struggle with this, right? Because they get investment and they're growing so fast and they feel like it, it can never stop. They have to keep beating themselves and keep right. growing faster and faster. And it's just not realistic. It's not uh, possible to do that. There's real you know, factors like competition and market factors, You know, COVID pandemic, a lot you of things. Can't you can't grow 50% grow. every year. Eventually right. you hit the top. They're like, no, no, the hockey stick has to keep going. No, no, actually they don't usually show the top, but in every, you start out like this and you go up, but then there's a shoulder up here and that's a happy place. The shoulder's a good place. It's okay. It's okay to get into that shoulder. Now, I would say a lot of founders don't like that place. They're in this part. And once it even gets here, they oh, and listeners don't know what I'm, I'm making this little hockey stick with my <laughs> finger. Um, once it gets into the, the rapid growth area, they're like, I really like the initial growth. That's what I'm good at. Um, and then you see another CEO step in or something like that, especially once it plateaus. They're like, look, I'm not interested in just running a company that's cruising along. I, I like the excitement. Um, I'm going, I'm going back to the beginning with something else. I say, good. That's what we need. More people doing that. Yeah. Well, I think you hit on something interesting there too, Sky, which is a growth is not growth for the sake of growth. You know, we're not just trying to create the biggest business ever. Uh, growth is about long-term sustainability. It's about the survival ability and becoming a dominant player in your industry. And so it's not necessarily about going from zero to 500 million in two years. It's about, are you successful? Can you provide a useful product or service? to the customers in your market? And can you do that for a long term? I mean, look at a company like Coca-Cola, you know, they've been around forever. They have a great product and people love them and the brand. That's success. You know, they don't have to keep trying to, you know, shove soda down more people's throats, you know, uh, success is good enough. And so we have to be okay with that. There's this, uh, you know, mentality and marketing culture that, you know, growth is the end all be all. And then if you're not growing, you're failing. You know, I don't think that's the case, you know, achieve success and then be happy. Yeah, I love that. Now, can you give some, I guess, so this is a, I don't know what, the marketing inside out, um, forget about your customers uh, concept. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brand you with that. <laughs> Tim Parkin doesn't care about your customers and neither should you, uh, marketing inside out. So is this like a general mindset concept? Is there a specific technique or framework for this? Uh, what what is it really? Yeah, I would say it's a perspective and it's a framework. So it's a perspective that you have to really believe in and understand. 
And I came to see this in my work with clients. You know, this isn't something that I thought this is the way it should be and let me force fit it. I saw this after working with so many clients that, you know, their real opportunity is not in their market. You know, they know how to market. They know how to reach customers. They know how to spend and activate on channels. You know, that's not the problem. The problem they have is they don't know how to operate. And marketing organizations have too many demands on them, too many priorities. If you look at the tenure of CMOs, it's way too short because companies try to tack on marketing and say, we need to market, so let's do some stuff and hope we get some sales. Marketing needs to be who you are, not what you do. And the best organizations, the most successful organizations are built on marketing. And so marketing right now is in a silo inside of companies and it should not be. And one of the things I talk about as part of this is that you, know, you should hire people who are your customers because they understand your customers. They are their customers. Well, one of my clients is in the pet industry and you know, it's great having Zoom calls with them because they all have pets and it's great to see all the pets. But you know, they right. know their own products and services. So instead of like studying them, like they're some type of a, a foreign alien um, and, and trying to understand your customers, it's like, or just hire people in that. If you have a company that does outdoors uh, wear, how about you hire people who love the outdoors? And then you right. don't have to like get the microscope out and study them and figure out how these people think. It's like you see that with millennials. There was this thing for a while. We we're like, oh, hire a millennial. That way we can we can't figure out how, how they think. Let's hire one of them. Ha ha. <laughs> we got we got our Sacagawea going on here. <laughs> it's it's true though, right? You know, we try to understand our customers and talk to them and market to them, but we aren't them. And that's what makes it so difficult. But this is why, you know, startups and entrepreneurs are so successful, you know, more often than big companies, because they know the market, they are the market, they created something to solve their own problem. And we forget that once you become a medium sized business or an enterprise that, you know, the customers are this taboo thing, hire customers. And this is why I truly believe, and we'll probably see this next year, uh, that influencers have become a massive opportunity. I think companies are going to start hiring influencers, you know, they already pay them money but they're going to you know, own these influencers basically and hire them and bring them on and say, go ahead and run our marketing because you know our customers and you know the marketing and messaging much better than we do. In the B2B space, there is a bit of that. You'll see somebody like Ann Handley, B2B influencer, right. and a company's just like, oh, well, like we, want, we, don't, we don't want to hire you as a consultant. We want you to be our brand kind yes. of. And, and, and they'll bring her on. I, I really do love that. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You mentioned Framework. Okay. So you said there's a framework. What is it? Like, are there distinct areas you look at where you say, oh, like, are there specific things when you go in where you say, okay, we're going to look at this and this and this and this and this, or do you just go in and like start sniffing around and looking for inefficiencies in general? I'll tell you two things. One is when I go in, you know, you can trip over these things quite easily. You just talk to people and they'll spill their guts and tell you, you know, all the terrible things that are happening or not happening. So that's pretty easy. But two, you know, I like to talk about tea, T-E-A, you know, the type that you drink. And that stands for transparency, expectations, and accountability. And it's those three areas that most marketing organizations are lacking severely. So on the transparency side, you know, is it clear what you're focused on, what's happening, and who's doing what? 
and I can talk more about each of these expectations you know, are the expectations for the team clear about what to do and how to do it and who does it and when it happens and all that. And then accountability. Are you holding people to that, those expectations and to what they need to be delivering on the priorities. And oftentimes we see, you know, all three of these areas, but at least two of them, there's massive gaps. And by addressing those, which is not complicated to do, you can improve the performance. Again, people and processes performance, you can improve the performance. And this is a windfall to your marketing because if your people are more efficient, if they're not wasting time, if you level up their skills, if they're making better decisions, you know, all of this adds up. And so it can dramatically improve the results the company gets. Okay. So we got T. I don't even know if I want to dig into that because I, I want to dig into something else. Um, and maybe we'll get to T. Your choice. You could say, you could talk about whatever you want, but I want to take a quick break over the break. Think about this. I want some specific examples because you're saying like transparency, expectations, accountability, but I want to hear like data efficiency, higher, cutting the dead weight, uh, letting people go who aren't necessary, um, you know, CRM efficiency or something like that. If there's specific areas where people usually have um, waste, we had an episode recently on, um, oh, recently, it's, it's almost Christmas here and this episode will air in a couple months. So the listeners are like, what do you mean recently? That was a couple months ago. But uh, we had an episode on content and efficiency in content, making sure your content isn't competing for SEO with your other content. So clustering your topics, um, those kind of things. I want to challenge you to come up with some specific examples of areas that people uh, can benefit in their marketing from getting more, more efficient. So we'll go to a break. We'll be right back with Tim Parkin talking about why you should not love your customers. Uh, now, what was the topic? Inside out marketing, finding efficiencies in areas other than your campaigns. And uh, you're listening to the Ify Market Podcast. We'll be right back. Are you looking for new leads or always in need of quality contacts for your marketing campaigns? But list companies and online tools are the worst, right? Well, then you've got to check out Top Data Search by Mountaintop Data. At Mountaintop Data, we're a team of weird people that actually like getting our hands dirty with sales and marketing data, and we specialize in business contact information. We compile and maintain a database of tens of millions of targeted, high-quality business decision makers with emails, phone numbers, mailing address, and all the information you need. Go to topdatasearch.com and request a free account with the promo code IYM1000, like if you market the podcast here, and get a free account with unlimited searches, no seat fees, and 1,000 free record download credits. That's topdatasearch.com. Welcome back to the If You Market podcast. We've got Tim Parkin here. We are, of course, talking about uh, forgetting about your customers and marketing inside out for uh, for profits and, and ROI from your marketing. Um, Tim, I do want to get to those specific examples I mentioned, but I also want to get to you and your company and make sure we can kind of highlight who you are. Um, all the people know right now is your name, Tim Parkin, a brief one, like one sentence introduction. So I'd like to dig into you, kind of how you got to specializing in this. Like, where did you start out? And, and then what was your path to um, Parkin Consulting? It's an interesting story, Sky. And I'll tell you the short version. You know, I started out in software development at a young age. I, I was a programmer. And I was doing software development for many companies, you know, startups, big companies, all sorts of companies. And by doing that, you know, I really enjoyed it, you know, as an engineer mindset. But I realized I was building software and websites and 
the customers weren't coming in. You know, these companies didn't have a programming problem, a software problem. They had a marketing problem. And that's when the light bulb really switched for me. And I realized this marketing thing seems interesting. You know, let me. So you started that. going up the ladder. You're like, I thought I fixed the problem, but it's farther upstream and farther upstream. Exactly. Yeah. And, and my background simultaneously was as a kid, you know, I wanted to be a professional magician. Uh, I thought that'd be so much fun. And so I practiced. I was in a magic club as a kid, even if you can imagine that. And uh, I, when I realized that to be a professional magician, you had to work nights and weekends, right? That's when people are having dinner and parties. I said, no, forget that. That's not for me. But in magic, what I learned was how people think and how they act, human behavior, human psychology. And so combining my you know, experience in technology with my passion for how people think and act and behave, that was really the perfect marriage in marketing. And so that's where my you know, passion and interest and direction has come from is combining technology, which marketing is synonymous with technology nowadays, and behavioral psychology, you know, how people respond to things and perceive things. You know, that's marketing, the marriage of those two things. And so as I started working with more and more companies, I was helping them you know, optimize their marketing. But then as I found, as I've said here, the biggest problem they have is not so much in the marketing per se, it's in how they manage and perceive and, and make the processes around marketing. So you said to somebody, I like technology, I like human nature, and I like magic. What can I do? And they said, oh, you're talking about marketing. It took me a while to come to that realization, but yeah, in a roundabout way, yes, it's been a journey. It's been a crazy thing. I've worked in all types of industries. You know, uh, I've seen behind the scenes of big companies and startups and everything in between. And it's, it's so fascinating to me and it's really enjoyable. I'm extremely privileged to get to work with really smart people doing really cool things, um, but you get to see the mess as they try to figure it out. And it's, it's extremely rewarding and sometimes it's extremely frustrating, but we always get through it. It's interesting. I feel like the, and I'm going to kind of label you here, but efficiency consulting. Um, and then you have the, the marketing experience, you have the technology, the programming experience, and you can also slide a hand if things get uh, out, of, out of control, say, ha look over there. And That's poof, right. you're gone. Um, <laughs> but consulting where you're working with efficiencies. Um, I'm going to try to not uh, say something mean here. It seems like uh, a much easier type of consulting than some of the others because you're just finding the inefficiencies and being like, ta-da, look what I've found. It's, um, it's a much easier problem to highlight, whereas a lot of consulting, you come in and you say, hey, maybe try this, try that. But it's a, you know, oh, your campaign should be run this way. Or you're talking about branding or something like that. And you really can't tell when you're done that there was a success or that it worked. Whereas with yours... It's like, oh, yeah, we'll adjust this this way. And, and then they just see immediately, oh, this saved us this much or made us this much. Like you can show that you were effective immediately, it seems, versus a lot Absolutely. of other consulting that you never quite know if it did anything. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the secret uh, benefit of what I do, right, is that it's extremely obvious and visible immediately. And also it has a long-term annualized impact. If I can help your team be more effective and more efficient and improve your results, that doesn't just help you now, it helps you every day for the next several years. And so my impact on these organizations is massive. And then by being large organizations, you talked about their checkbooks earlier, you know, uh, the reward here for my work is quite substantial. So do you ask for the, for a piece on the back end, like an actor, where you're like, look, here's my upfront cost, but then I want 1% of the savings over the next 10 years. <laughs> if I did, I'd be retired by now. Yeah, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll tell you three things. One is, you know, uh, I did the Strength Fighters test 
And my strength, my primary strength, according to that, is maximizer. And I think that really speaks to what you're saying about the efficiencies is uh, I'm able to go in and I have a real passion for finding how do we get the most out of this, out of the people, out of the tools we have, out of the you know, budget we have, et cetera. So that's really something I enjoy, a puzzle I love solving. And, and a large organization, you know, a 1%, 2%, 3% improvement is millions of dollars. And so, as you said, it's not hard to have these impacts you know, substantially uh, with very minimal um, intervention. Right. Uh, and the third thing I'd say is, you know, um, uh, humbly here, as you were trying to, you know, be careful not to be disparaging, and that's fine. Um, my clients hire me because I'm an outsider. They hire me because of my ignorance. You know, they can't see it because they've been dealing with these issues for so long, or they can't create change because of politics, and they know that they can't deal with this. So I'm brought in just to see the things they can't see and to deal with the issues that they can't deal with. And that really is my true value. It's not any kind of special sauce I have per se. Obviously, I have a framework, I have an approach, I have experience, but a large amount of what I do is just being the outsider and saying, you see that thing over there? We need to fix that. And they say, yeah, you're right. We couldn't. And I said, well, let me show you how. Yeah. And then we do it together. It's, um, it almost seems like you are a paid customer feedback, but you have specific skills you're coming in with. I remember early in my career, I thought consultants were just kind of a con most of the time. It's like these guys, they come in and then they point out this because I wasn't buried deep enough in the company to realize that, it, that I wasn't going to be able to see these things. I hadn't really got into any sort of a career where I could see that problem even existed. To me, I was always coming from the outside. So I was like, hell, I'm a consultant. I just started working here and I'm 18 years old. I could, I could tell right. you, this. I saw the same thing. Like, yeah, but this guy has skills and comes from the outside. And can right. tell us stuff because he's not worried about his uh, career within the company <laughs> that other people exactly. may not want to say. Yes, he's a scapegoat. And often I'm the scapegoat. Yeah. And that's fine. You know what they say about consultants? A consultant is someone who borrows your watch to tell you the time. You know, and that's often <laughs> the perception. Um, but real consultants, true consultants, you know, improve the client's condition and leave them off better than when they showed up. I'm going to start Michael a company that does that. That's the scapegoat consultant where I don't even pretend to fix anything. I'm like, look, you're going to need somebody to blame. This disaster is about to go on your head. I come in. I'm the guy that gets in trouble. And like, you need somebody, a sacrificial lamb, right? You can hire me to you. be sacrificed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this then, is uh, a million dollar idea right here. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of executives that would look for that. It's the, uh, the super rich guy looking for somebody to take the rap in a crime for him, then go to jail. And they're like, yeah, I'll pay millions right. for you to spend five <laughs> years in jail. Just confess. I'll be that, the, uh, the corporate confessor. I come in and confess that it was my fault. You can fire me. <laughs> and this is uh, everybody's happy. <laughs> That's, I mean, that is a dirty, that has to, I bet you it exists, but nobody's publicizing that. Yeah, that's under the table. Yeah, yeah for that, sure. That exists. So somebody's listening to this saying, holy crap, I got to do that. It's like saying you want to be a hitman. They're probably out there. They're just not <laughs> advertising in the yellow pages. That's right. Um, okay, so back to parking consulting. Is there anything else we need to cover on this? I mean, talking about you, it's kind of like this one thing. Um, I guess specifically, who do you guys work for? How do you get jobs? What are you looking for as a company? Because we kind of were going over what you do. Yeah, you know, I'd say I'm an independent consultant. So it's just me. I am the whole company. Uh, and I'm fortunate, as I mentioned, to work with uh, wonderful clients. Most of my clients are large companies. You know, obviously, they have a marketing team. So, you know, they have a team of 10 or more. Some of them, it's, you know, a team of 100 um, but you know, my clients are global. They're all over the world and they're in every industry you can imagine, B2C, B2B, but any marketing organization that wants to improve, that wants to accelerate their growth, you know, I can help them. And uh, I'll tell you for your listeners here, you know, regardless of your size, this applies to everybody in marketing. 
And I have what I call a vault, which is all my videos and templates and worksheets and playbooks and tons of IP uh, that can help you maximize your marketing. And it's what I share with my clients as well. So if anybody listening wants access to that, uh, it's completely free. And all you have to do is open up your phone and text the word GROW to this number, 844-311-3200. One more time, just text the word GROW to 844-311-3200. I'll share it with you. Do as you will with it. I really genuinely hope it helps you. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. But there's a lot of great stuff, a lot of stuff we've been talking about here. And as we're about to talk about the specifics of what does it look like? How do you do it? Excellent. I'll put that in the show notes for everybody to the uh, text grow 844-311-3200. feels like it's a uh, used car dealership commercial now where you just say the number over and over and over again. That's right. Yes. Um, <laughs> but that'll, that'll be in the show notes. All right. Let's get to those specifics. Like some... I mean, I guess if there's not, here's the five things you look at and break down. Some examples from um, from from clients uh, w- would also be great as uh, specifics. Yeah, let's start with that. You know, one of my clients uh, realized that they have three teams in the marketing organization, brand, digital, and creative. And these teams needed to have a shared language and really get together. And there was, you know, some discrepancies between them, some kind of um, um, battles between them, I could say. And so they brought me on to create this uh, training program specifically for the brand team to become more familiar with digital marketing and the terminology and the use of it and how internally they used it so they could, you know, collaborate more effectively. That grew in size and became a training program that most of the company has participated in, you know, marketing, all the different teams, even sales has been involved with it. Uh, And it's become really valuable for them because obviously now they have a shared language, they're on the same page, they can collaborate more effectively, but it's created conversations in the hallways and in meetings about how they operate and how they should be thinking about things and framing things. And it's a tool that they can now put new employees through to say, go watch these videos that we recorded in discussion uh, so that you can get up to speed of how we operate here and how we've done things traditionally and how we're thinking about doing things. So I think that's a real tangible example of leveling the playing field and aligning everyone together so you can be most effective and collaborate in a really meaningful way. So which team won? <laughs> which team won? Well, they had actually a graduation ceremony where there was quizzes with all this stuff and you had to rate it. So different people within each team, you know, had taken the quizzes and supported it. But because it was around digital marketing, the digital team didn't really, you know, um, take the quizzes that much. They were more there to support and provide explanations, et cetera. But I think it helped the brand team, certainly, but it, every team, you know, really even sales said they learned a lot of stuff. About so you're marketing. merging teams together, basically, that were really siloed, yeah. separate teams competing with each other even and yeah. saying, hey, I know we're big and you start factioning off and have politics, but let's kind of merge this all back together. I suppose that removes inefficiencies in, in the communication area like you said, with different words being used, was it was part of it just like defining like, okay, look, <laughs> when this is, happens, we got to call it this. This is what we're calling this thing. Some of it is that simple. Yeah, just terminology. Other ways it is approaches. You know, how do we think about things? What's possible? What's not possible? Why do we do certain things and why not? Uh, what are other ideas we can think about for the future? And so, you know, even some innovations came out of this. So and the new ideas and things we should look to do in the future. So it's been tremendously valuable for them and exceeding their expectations. And it was really enjoyable to be a part of it. But that's the type of thing that a simple training like that, right? This is not revolutionary, uh, is necessary and can really help. And this is a large company you know, that has a massive amount of people in marketing 
the need to have that on a regular basis and the ability to share it with new employees and, and onboard them in this way to kind of indoctrinate them, uh, for lack of a better term, is really helpful. I think when you have a large company like that, when you start, you should hire the Bobs from Office Space, like the actual guys just for one day to come in and freak people out. <laughs> That's awesome. Can um, you imagine? Yeah. That would, that would be a great thing for a large company to get those two actors to come in and just see yes. who first is like, wait a second. What the hell? What have I done? This yeah. is a joke. This is a joke. Oh my God. I thought I was worried. This is a joke. <laughs> We're talking about efficiencies, specific examples. You're taking the multiple marketing departments, kind of bringing them together. Um, what else, what else you got in specifics? And I guess, yeah. um, boy, I had one top of mind that I, that I wanted to ask about and I've uh, I've totally forgotten now this is great pod um, so I'll, I'll let you take it away what else yeah let me ramble while you think about it you know one of the other real basics real fundamentals that anybody can apply today is the responsibility assignment matrix yeah that's what it's called or you may know it as a RACI matrix R-A-C-I and if you just google R-A-C-I matrix you'll see examples of this what it basically is is you list out everyone in your team in your organization your marketing organization and then you define who is responsible for what. This is the accountability to... you were talking about earlier. Yes, exactly. And it also provides transparency because we can see who is doing what. But if you list out everyone and say, and when it comes to this campaign or to this project, or even just holistically, here's who's responsible for what, and here's who's accountable for what, and here's who will be consulted or involved in these different elements or aspects. What often happens, and as the team grows, is that people overstep their bounds or they're unclear, you know, who, who do I talk to for this? Or who should we involve in it? Or they don't involve someone who should have been involved, you know, and the decision is made and now it's too late. So the responsibility account, uh, assignment matrix really helps with that to just bring clarity and transparency and accountability to who is responsible for what. So it's a very simple tool. You can build it in a spreadsheet, but I, it's one of the first steps that we do to figure out who is here, who needs to do what, and now, what processes do we need to build around those individuals, around those areas of responsibility? It sounds almost like cheating because you you're saying you're doing it for them, but really for your job, it seems like you need to know who's responsible for what. You're exposing <laughs> so all my like, secrets I'm here. doing yeah. this for you, not for me, really. <laughs> but so uh, I got to yeah. know who handles what here. And the thing I was thinking about was meetings. I remember seeing this charted. I think it just went massive online and it was basically like, hey, here's the only situation you need to have a meeting. Like if this, if this, if this, you don't need, no, you don't need, no, you don't need. Okay. Here's the, the one situation where you really do need a meeting. Um, is that something that, that you hit on that you've mentioned it earlier, the meetings and are yes. you having 50 different meetings? Yeah, there's too many meetings. Uh, meetings are an absolute waste of time and you have to uh, obliterate every meeting you're having. And oftentimes what happens is you meet on the same thing multiple times because someone wasn't included or you have to recap. It's a total waste of time. So you have to just, I want to, I want to add something in here. Meetings are a total waste of time unless you don't have any. And then you realize really quickly how bad you need some meetings. Um, because, uh, <laughs> I've been in companies that had no meetings and we said, holy crap, we need to institute some meetings for efficiency. And people were like, yes, we need to get together and talk about this stuff and be on the same page. And then it was like, yay, we're going to meet. And then after a while, yeah, you get meeting creep. And then people are like, meetings suck. And then they're, you know, it swings back and forth. It's, it's so true. Yes, that's a great point and a great addition. I appreciate that. You know, and uh, meetings should never happen unless there's a genuine need for it. And meetings are not about disseminating information. They're about making decisions. And so if you're going to meet, you have to know what you're going to decide on. 
And everyone has to be prepared. If there's prep work, if there's pre-read material, everyone has to be given that. They have to be given advance notice for the meeting. And there must be an agenda for the meeting of here's what we're going to talk about. And here's the outcome of the meeting. When this meeting is over, what have we done? If you don't clearly define that, you can't meet. And one of the things I tell my clients is you have to empower your people to reject meetings, to decline meetings if they don't meet those conditions I just outlined. Because what happens is you get invited to a meeting and it's your boss or your manager. And so you feel obligated to go. And that's nonsense. You can't go to these meetings. You said invited. You aren't invited. You are assigned <laughs> summoned. to a meeting. Yeah, <laughs> summoned. Yes. That's right. Summoned is a good word. And the other thing too is arbitrary timelines for meetings. You know, we have a meeting that's 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour. Why? You know, I can run a meeting in 15 minutes or less. Um, and that's because we've already defined everything. We know we're going to talk about. We know the outcome we're trying to achieve. Uh, but with no you have- timeline, you end up in a three-hour meeting. Easily, right? Sometimes <laughs> longer. Or you meet, let's, let's meet again to finalize this. Yeah. It's a total waste of time. And so you have to set a minimum time frame there of 20 minutes and say, after 20 minutes, let's just end this. You know, people get exhausted. Mm-hmm. We're on Zoom all day. It's a waste. And the other factor is the people. You know, make sure you only have the people there who can participate in the decision and who need to be involved. And at Amazon, they have this, the two pizza rule, you know, don't have more people in a meeting or a project than can be fed by two pizzas. If you have to cater it, then it's too many people. You, <laughs> you true, mentioned right? the, the length of the meeting and it makes me think, um, I was meeting with some people and they're using Zoom. There's paid Zoom and you can have be on as long as you want, but then there's the free Zoom. And I think it limits to 45 minutes or something yes. like that. And I remember saying this limit is great um, because it forces you to get done in that time. Like if you got to log out of zoom and get everybody to log back in for a second session, you blew it in the meeting. Like you need to figure out a way. Now we go over 45, but this is a, you know, a, a longer podcast. So it's going to, yes. we, we have to actually pay for this stuff, but most people <laughs> should really use the free zoom just to limit themselves to, or at least have a free account that you can use most of the time to limit yourselves to that, uh, that 45 minute hard out where you're like, Hey, we got to wrap it up because it's about to shut us down. That's absolutely right. You know, there, and you bring up an interesting point, Sky, because there's two problems. One is at the end of a meeting, when that limit pops up for some people, you'd be shocked at how much progress they make in the remaining five minutes <laughs> than they did the whole previous 40 minutes, right? Yep. And the second part is the beginning of a meeting. The first 10, 15 minutes are spent on pleasantries. You know, hey, great to see you. How are you doing? You know, that's great, but get that out of the way in the beginning of the week or do it offline or do it individually. You know, not in the meeting when you're wasting everyone's time. And people are uh, too sensitive to not interrupt each other, talk over each other, or change the topic and say, you know what, Sky, that's a great point. Let's take it offline. Or we can't talk about that right now. We have a decision to make. It comes and up in have- our general company meetings all the time. We say, wait, this is a, this is a technical thing, and we're, we'll discuss that offline again. Right. Oops, this is a this department. This is a that department. We're in a general company meeting right now. Um, Absolutely. You have yeah, to take Cutting control. that off. I like it. Um, <laughs> Okay. Okay. So we, we got meetings there. We got the, the racy metrics. We got uh, the, the bringing together of the departments, whether it's one department fractured. Yeah. Um, do you have any, any other specifics for us? I got a lot more. Yeah. I'll tell you one of the oh. interesting ones that I like <laughs> is what I call the book of knowledge. And this is something I, I try to get all my clients to build and put together. And a book of knowledge can take a lot of shapes, but there's a lot of internal knowledge that people have. You know, some people have a guru in their company who's been there for 20 years and knows all the ins and outs, knows all the people, knows all the history of, you know, what have we done? What have we tried? There's a lot of knowledge. Even, even new employees have, have ideas that they don't share. 
So the book of knowledge is a place to put all that. It's what do we know? Uh, what have we done in the past? What have our results been? Uh, what are we thinking about for the future? You know, any kind of uh, testimonials from customers, customer case stories, any results of experiments we've tried or channels we've tried or partners we've worked with, everything should go in this book of knowledge. And it becomes this tome that's extremely valuable, right? Because now you can flip through that and say, well, what have we tried in this area? Or if we're thinking about trying something new, let's look at you know, who we've worked with in the past or why this has not worked out or what has been successful. So there's so many insights you can get from this book of knowledge, but you have to actually put stuff into it. And that's mm. the hard part is getting people to put stuff <laughs> into it. A blank book of knowledge isn't, isn't a lot of good. Not very useful, is it? Um, no. So I think this is similar to what I call the hit by a bus document. Uh, yes. And I frequently tell people like, okay, you know how to do this or you know this, that's great. But what if you got hit by a bus tomorrow? Would we be screwed? If this yes. isn't down somewhere for somebody else to step in and know the process, know the, oh yeah, I, I saved that there type of a thing, then we're screwed. Like you, you can't have that kind of a, we're a pretty fairly small business and yeah, one person goes out and nothing is documented anywhere. You're screwed. I, you just lost a department. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. You have to rebuild all that. Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely that. And the other uh, aspect to the other layer of that is, you know, when I work with my clients, I'll, I'll be in these meetings and they're looking at the results of their campaigns or an experiment or something they launched. And they'll talk about it and they'll say, this is great. You know, this part wasn't great. This part was. And then that's it. And they move on. And then a month later, it's like they completely forgot what they did and what worked. And they do it again or they'll try something else and not remember what things they said they do differently next time. So that's where the book of knowledge really comes into play as well is to say, what have we done historically? And what did we say we'd do differently next time? And now let's actually reference that. So it's not just in our heads, but it's on paper that we can point to. And one thing that we have, and tell me if this fits in that category also, is um, a running log of meeting notes. When we do have meetings and things are discussed and decided and all that kind of stuff, I mean, I guess when you look at the developer, developer department, you have things like Jira or something like that, where you have, you can look back and see, oh yes, this task and this was done and this exists because it was done on this date and, and all those kind of things. But with individual departments having discussed certain things, um, you know, we, we just have a running tab of all the meeting notes from anything important that happens in a meeting. And those can just be looked back through at, at any time. Would that fall under this or is that a different animal or is that a bad idea? No, I think it's a great idea. Uh, the challenge becomes how actionable is it and how searchable is it? It sounds like yours is pretty searchable or accessible. Um, but the actionable part is what I would recommend you know, to people listening is if a meeting is about making a decision, then you're going to have an outcome of what was the decision. Documenting those things is extremely valuable. I think the other notes are probably also valuable depending on the context here, but at least making those decisions you know, clearly visible and easily findable would be paramount so that you can go back and say, what have we decided and why did we decide that? Because that's often the case is something, you know, a decision is made, it's a year later and you're like, well, why did we do that? We need to make a similar decision and we have no idea right. the basis to make it on. But sometimes for me, it's, oh yeah, we discussed this two years ago. Now let me look at the emails from that time frame. Like what was sent <laughs> right. right before and after this meeting? <laughs> yeah, and searching Slack as well. Yeah, That's where all the info really, it's like the meeting notes are just kind of like uh, little cliff notes on, on right. topics and stuff. And then you got it. Now you can narrow down what year to start digging around in to, to figure out what happened somewhere. That's um, awesome. Another thing I was thinking about uh, when you talk about efficiency, um, I know in my company, I have chastised people a bit in the past or just begged them not to do it anymore. When, when you're emailing back and forth with somebody, 
and they have to thank you for sending them the email. And I say, I don't, please don't send me an email. And now I'm like, oh, I got, I got to check this email. And I look at it and all it says is thanks. Like, I don't need a thanks email. We're, this is professional. We can get the, like you were saying with meetings, get the pleasantries out of the way at the beginning of the week. Like with emails, I'm like, we can get the pleasantries out of the way outside of email. If you don't say thanks, I'm not going to think you hate me or something like that. Unless you're confirming you got the email and that's important. Like, please, I don't need to check 50 emails a day that just say thanks. As long as they have a smiley face too with the thanks, yeah. then it's okay. Tell a little <laughs> story. I'm like, I don't know. Is there any, now I got to read three paragraphs just to find out the point was thanks. You're right. Well, this goes back to T, TEA, and the E being expectations, that having clear expectations with people to say, as you described, I don't need an email that says thanks. When we email, let's be to the point and succinct, and it's expected that I'm grateful for your work and you're grateful for my response and my work. And so we don't have to say that. Let's just say what we need to say and nothing else. And I don't need a response back. And so when it comes to expectations, there's three steps there. <clears throat> the first is to document those expectations and to you know, create processes and principles of operation to say, here's how we operate and here's what we'll do and not do. Company second, policy, we do not thank by email. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but it's necessary. And the second is to communicate those expectations. If you just write them down and no one knows about them, it's not useful. So you have to communicate that, whether it's corporately or for a project, or if you're assigning someone a task and say, I want you to do this, here's what I expect. And then the third part is to review those expectations. People forget, people fall into their habits. So we have to, on a regular basis, you know, biannually, annually, quarterly, review expectations with people and say, just as a reminder, here's what I expect from you, from the team, et cetera. This so reminds you, me, earlier you were, you, you were saying something and it made me think, oh, what you do, your job kind of is to be the band manager. You're like, these people are really good at what they do. They can really play the instruments and write songs and stuff, but they suck at getting the equipment from one stadium to the next and making sure it's set up and having a, and this is really, now we're talking about the rider. You're saying like, yes, we need all these things. Um, we're going to list them out. We just have to put into a document. Don't email. Thanks. We're busy getting on to the next show. and We don't have time to worry if that was an important email or not. And we need to read it. Um, so you're kind of setting out all your, your little rules that really are important for the efficiency of moving this machine of people who are super good at their thing, but they got to have a band manager to do all the details, the logistics of the business. I love that. It's so accurate, more accurate than you realize. And just tangentially here, I'll tell you, you know, as a kid, I was in band, I was in concert and symphony and marching band. And uh, you'd probably never guessed that I played the flute uh, and I played piccolo and marching band. So I'm very familiar with bands and I liken it to, you know, uh, these celebrities when you go behind the scenes and they're setting up their green room and they say, I have to have, you know, only green M&Ms. I need to have this there. That's the level of detail that companies need to have with their processes is to, to outline these things. Here's how we operate. Here's how we don't operate and make that clear and make it uh, transparent and make sure people understand it. I'm going to edit Piccolo out and we'll put in like drums or, or at <laughs> least a yeah. saxophone or something. Come on. You don't want to tell people that you, yeah, I was in a band. I played the Piccolo. They're like, Oh, hey, <laughs> you were real cool for a second. And then you threw the out flute Piccolo. was originally a male <laughs> instrument. So <laughs> go figure. I guess you got Jethro Tull out there. There's not a, there's not a whole lot of uh, rock star flute players, but there's some, <laughs> there should be right. Yeah. You got, uh, what was the, um, the jazz news movie, the jazz flute going on there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's where it's at. Okay, so um, we got some specific examples. Another thing that came to mind for me was um, 
with with the efficiency thing, Elon Musk, I remember seeing a story and I think a lot of these great leaders, when people read their books, one of the takeaways they get is like, oh, wow, the, these are the details the guy was focused on for efficiencies as a leader at the top. Um, there really were these little things. And I remember hearing one from him about acronyms in the company. He had to like crack down on acronyms yes. because it was like running amok and people were acronymizing everything and they couldn't communicate and he had to make rules about when you can and can't make an acronym for something and use it in your department. Uh, and that kind of fascinated me, but I realized once you get to a scale, it can cause problems because it's a communication problem. It is. Yeah. And you don't realize it. And it sounds so stupid to talk about. Um, but like you said, any delay is an issue. And especially if you're confusing one acronym for another, you know, if we're talking about the OTP and you meant the ONP or something, you know, that's a or big DBA. Deal. You have acronyms that are like the DBA. When right. I say it, most people think probably doing business as you're a small business, you're you have a DBA, it's your license to do business under a certain name. Um, database administrator is how we use it in our right. company because we deal with data. There's a lot of database. There's a ton of acronyms where you look up online and you're like, what's this acronym? You know, you mentioned one earlier. I was like, well, if I type that in, I'd probably get 50 different things that it could be. Right. Um, and that could be a problem if you have multiple acronyms, especially usually doing like three letter acronyms. Now there's only so many combinations. You're going to have some really uh, uh, some overlapping acronyms that could cause problems at a company that size. But you see the richest man in the world and he's dealing with rules around when you can and can't have acronyms in the company and that's worth his time and for complex technology you know like you said they're not building simple things over there uh and so it goes to show that even in complex situations you know there's no justification oh, yeah. in their scenario for acronyms well boom the rocket blew up what happened oh you meant that dba my bad <laughs> <Uh -oh>. yeah <laughs> it's catastrophic yeah well I, I think it's really about communication as you described and it, it obviously changes based on your business and your needs, but making sure your people can communicate and collaborate as efficiently and effectively as possible is paramount. If they can't, if there are issues there, it'll cost you. Yep. Excellent. Um, okay. Well, I think we have time for like one more specific uh, situation or example. If you've got another one you want to throw out there. Yeah. Well, we're talking about acronyms. So I thought it'd be appropriate to share an acronym, which is OLAs. You know, a lot of people are familiar with SLAs, service level agreements uh, that you have with businesses or, you know, you think about hosting, they have uptime. We guarantee this level of service that you're going to have uptime, you know, for 99.9% .9 or whatever. OLAs are similar, but they're operational level agreements or operating level agreements, and they have to do with people and processes. And so we might say, you know, uh, Sky, I'll get this to you in three days. Uh, and so in this process, this part of the process will take three days or I need to have, you know, this type of resource and it'll be available to me when I need it. Or, you know, John and Susan are going to be available to support me in this project. So those are the basis for operating level agreements. It's agreements about how we're going to operate, how quickly we're going to operate and who's going to be involved. It and seems like are... a computer program almost for people's processes saying, if this, then this. That's true. Um... Yeah. And if it's violated, it's an issue, right? Because if I say I'm going to get this to you in three days at this part of the process, you know, I'm going to design the creative and get it back to you in three days. If I take more than three days, we're going to miss a deadline or right. maybe we miss an opportunity. And so you have to have OLAs, especially in bigger companies. And you have to, again, hold people accountable to those that if something is missed there, there's usually a deeper issue. You know, is it a people problem? Was someone out? Uh, are they, you know, overwhelmed? Uh, do we not have the resources to support that? So OLAs well, then if somebody's help. out, you say, okay, well, where's the hit by the bus document? So somebody else, who's the right, next person is supposed to pick that up? 
Um, somebody can't just be out because we have a OLA here that says this has to be done within three days and now it's been four. Exactly. Yes. And those indicate oftentimes people who are overwhelmed or parts of the process that are overwhelmed uh, or assumptions that are being made that, you know, that something was reasonable or possible and it's not. And then we can uncover and find more uh, issues there. And so, like you said, OLAs help the companies, but it also helps me identify those bottlenecks and it helps the company identify those bottlenecks too, which they need to know. If you can't identify your bottlenecks, then you can't improve your process. And so it's really healthy and helpful to have OLAs to establish, again, here's how we operate, here's the expectation, and here's the repercussion or consequence if this is not met. So that makes me think uh, I should let you go now because I really need you to get to work on the supply chain issues everywhere. It seems like they need some OLAs and they need a lot of these other things put in place. There's probably a lot of uh, small trucking outfits and stuff like that that don't have these efficiencies. And then when something gets tweaked, it starts falling apart and that ripples everywhere. Um, so I'm looking forward to you fixing that for everybody. Thank you uh, very much, Tim Parkin. <laughs> I'll get it fixed next year. No problem. <laughs> when it does get fixed, we'll just give you credit. Hey, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, we'll reach back least. out. We'll say thank you. We'll post it online. Hey, I don't know if you noticed, but supply chain's fixed. I'm pretty sure Tim did it. It's only fair. <laughs> only fair. Yeah, I'm glad I'm here. I'm here to serve. Okay, fantastic. Um, I feel like we've kind of boiled this down pretty well. People have a good idea what you're talking about here. Just to recap uh, for for the listeners, um, marketing inside out. Uh, basically why you should not be thinking about your customers or forget about your customers as it's been put, I've heard. Um, the other areas of marketing to, to think about, um, would you say this is mostly or all around efficiencies? There's a lot of it around efficiency. I think efficiency is the how, but the what is about you know, achieving uh, rapid growth that a lot of organizations are trying too hard to grow and they're looking outside and not inside. And if you look inside first, you'll find tons of opportunities to build a strong foundation that will help you grow a lot faster. And so this is really ultimately about working smarter, not harder. And too many of us in marketing are, are trying to find a silver bullet to help us grow faster when the silver bullet's right in front of you. It's your own people. It's your own processes. If you get that house in order, then you'll have a much easier and faster time growing. When you say the silver bullet is hard work in the trenches, that's that that goes counter to a silver bullet. I just want a magic thing I can do. You know, you studied magic, just do the magic thing to make it all awesome. It's um, funny because the paradox of magic, I've shown my wife, you know, magic tricks and I've shown her how they work, you know, the behind the scenes. There's so much that happens behind the scenes in a magic trick. You're so far ahead of the person. There's hmm. so many, you have to memorize the script and what you say and, and respond to people. It's hard work. So I think to your point, even magic, you know, it's hard work. And that's Magic's the real not magic, magic of it. It is a, actually not. a ton of hard work to make it look work. like magic. <laughs> that's right. It looks so seamless and fluid and magical because of all the hard work that went into it. So you say, cool. Yeah, I can come in and do some magic in your business. And then when you get there, you say, okay, you show them the trick. Then you're like, now, I'll show <laughs> now you how to work. do that. You have to practice this for three hours a day for the next six months, and then you'll have the first step down. And they're like, holy crap, magic is a lot of hard work. It really is. You know, there's one, there's one move that I do in Magic with the Cards, and it took me literally three years to master. So um, some things just take a lot of hard work. But, you know, the rewards come to those who put in the work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you on the magic is a lot of hard work uh, thing. I think that's a, a good, to, good. To, if you take away one thing from this episode, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that the magic, most important thing, a lot of hard work. All right. Fantastic. Well, um, let's see. People can find you at uh, timparkin.com. 
um, LinkedIn, of course, to search for Tim Parkin, anywhere else you'd like them to look. And of course, we will have that, that number to text in the show notes as well. Um, anywhere else people should be finding you, reaching out, connecting with you? No, LinkedIn is great. My website, as you mentioned, timparkin.com. That's parking without the G. Yeah, that's wonderful. I appreciate it. Oh, Tim Parkin. Yeah. Um, okay. And then uh, show notes you can find at ifyoumarket.com. And uh, thank you for, for listening to the show. And uh, I'll give you, I'll thank you ahead of time for giving us a good review on iTunes or, or wherever you listen. And on behalf of the If You Market team and Tim Parkin of Parkin Consulting, thank you for listening to the If You Market podcast, where we believe if you market the shit out of it with inside out marketing, they will come. Oh, and I think your description, Tim, was way better than just saying forget about the customers. Like you described it in all these uh, efficiency for growth, looking inside yourself uh, type of things. I was like, that sounds better than forget about the customers. Hey, <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on, Tim. Hey, thanks so much, Scott. It's been wonderful. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.